This is Ryan Harvey in Baltimore, and you're listening to episode 31 of Hope Dies Last, The Violent Rise of Narendra Modi. This legislation will lead to the pushing of these small farmers out of the market. Governments in the past before Modi have also wanted to deregulate Indian markets. There are so many different grievances which are building up. The Hindu nationalist movement has very explicitly taken inspiration from fascist movements. They actively train in how to use weapons for attacking the communists, the Muslims, the Christians. That is also like illuminating the global economic order and this uneven development and, you know, how that shapes politics in a place like India. It's a really critical moment in India right now. We recorded this episode of the podcast before news broke of the COVID-19 outbreak in India and the extent to which the Modi government had failed to disclose or recognize the extent to which the virus was spreading in the country. With the tragedy of India right now in the background, we wanted to talk about some of the context of that tragedy and the rise of the Hindu nationalist movement in India that has been the backdrop of a lot of the recent political developments in the country. Joining me to discuss this are two very good friends of mine, Smriti Umpadieh and Sam Agarwal. Welcome both of you to my podcast. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. We uh, decided to do this podcast because we were all chatting via a WhatsApp thread about doing a podcast episode about India. One reason because of what's been happening with the farmers protests and everything, but also just generally because it's both of you have done extensive research and field work and many years of traveling and living in India, thinking about the politics, the social movements, civil society mobilization. But it's not something that a lot of folks in my audience, which is primarily folks in the U.S. and in the U.K., pay a lot of attention to, even though it's one of the most populous countries in the world and a very significant player in global geopolitics. Sam, maybe you just want to introduce us to sort of what's happening right now generally under Modi and with the farmers' protests, and then we're going to dig into both of those things throughout the episode. Yeah, in India, there's been a historic protest unfolding. It's been a kind of a combination of farmers and workers who have been protesting a number of reforms at the BJP government. That's the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is currently in power at the federal level in India, protesting a number of reforms that they had passed. And one of them, I mean, the most prominent of them would be the farm laws, which passed in October which kind of aimed to deregulate India's agricultural market and threaten the livelihood of what's uh, expected to be hundreds of millions of farmers. And yeah, the protest has been probably the biggest the biggest challenge to date to the, you know, openly fascist authoritarian government or at least the government has a fascist orientation ideologically. It's debated whether you would call the current uh, regime a fascist one. I don't necessarily think we're at that point yet. But, you know, there's been a number of major protest waves in India since the coming to power of this regime in 2014. And this is probably the biggest of all of them. You know, as most people, I think, have seen in the international headlines, um, this was considered the largest strike in you know world history with 250 million uh, farmers and workers coming together for a one-day strike in November, um, November of last year. And then that protest has just kind of continued, you know, and it's still going on. It has faced massive repression at the hands of the Delhi police. And probably even more, you know, alarming is the way in which the media has tried to characterize this protest as um, illegitimate and being fueled by what they call anti-national elements and trying to smear the farmers who have a genuine grievance, which is about their livelihood and turn the average like Indian citizen against the farmers' protests. But thankfully, it seems like that has not done what it set out to do in that the farmers have continued their resolve to fight and struggle. And they're continuing to have a very high morale and facilitate an atmosphere that's transformative in many ways. 
And Smriti, I was going to ask you to talk about the farmers' protests as well, but I want to ask, who are these people? You know, when we say farmers, like, who are they? Are they part of organizations? Are they individuals? Are they coming from specific regions? And what does the composition of these protests tell us about the state of both civil society and the Modi government? That's a great question. I think, um, I mean, I haven't been in India since 2017. So Sam, you know, you, you should correct me if I'm wrong or fill in. But um, I think what's really remarkable also about the protests is not just their sheer size, but also like the organization of them, including like the organizations that are involved. I think there are like over three dozen um, organizations farmers unions, labor unions that have participated. Um, and I mean, I yeah, I think it's n not a spontaneous upwelling of discontent, but it's like actually we see the extent to which Indian civil society is um, organized and how these organizations can mobilize this uh, discontent in a really impressive way. What we, what we see prominently portrayed is that it's taking place in in Delhi, and so it's the Punjab and Haryana states uh, that are predominantly agrarian states that uh, were also the site of what was considered to be a successful green revolution in the 1960s and 70s. Um, they're farmers who are, I don't know, presented as sort of the vanguard of, of this movement, but I think because of the nature of the reforms, um, it has a pretty uh, wide social base that it goes beyond these uh, farmers from what were once uh, some of the wealthier states in India. To add to what Smriti said, you know, like it's the protests have been generally concentrated in these two states where there was a U.S. style green revolution that was funded and uh, encouraged by the United States government. And it was significant because <clears throat> these are the states in India that are the dominant producers of wheat. And this is one of the crops uh, for which the Indian government provides a subsidy at the time of sale. So one of the reforms in the the farm farm laws is essentially it has the effect of gradually over time doing away with those what they call minimum support prices. And so that's one of the big reasons why you know these farmers have been out there. Um, it's because they you know they adopted the, these high yielding. Uh, varieties of seeds and uh, growing techniques, which were input intensive, you know, under the pressure of both the Indian government and international community. And there was a huge growth in productivity in the initial years uh, following the 60s. And then um, by the 80s, it like, it completely dropped off. And like, farmers started to see um, not only declining yields, but also their land getting um, exhausted by uh, over overuse of of inputs and pesticides um, and different chemical inputs. Um, but also the fact that climate change is is a huge factor that determines one's ability to farm. Right. So they're you know increasingly vulnerable to all these different elements, and the the minimum support prices is like a a bare bones sort of safety net for these farmers to survive as farmers. But I agree with Smriti that it, it has brought out more segments of the Indian society aside from these, um, you know, what what people sometimes call wealthy farmers, although, you know, they aren't necessarily wealthy. But um, yeah, these capitalist farmers, I guess you could call them. And the segments that have come out, which have been pretty uh, unexpected because historically in the Indian farmers movement, you know, there hasn't been a kind of convergence of interests among the, you know, what they call like landless laborers or like the rural proletariat and the people who have land, right? And, and this time around, we are seeing, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, like we are seeing workers come out. Um, people who don't have land, and we're also seeing small farmers come out, you know, who who are also afraid that this legislation will lead to their land loss, will lead to big, you know, consolidation of of land and the pu pushing of these small farmers out of the market. It's a unique moment in that sense because we haven't seen this kind of farmers movement in the post independence period in India with all these different, you know, class coalitions that are 
that are still obviously very nascent. Um, I wouldn't say that like all of the conflicts that have existed historically between these different groups have been worked out. But yeah, it's it's significant that they're coming together in a single protest with a common set of demands, at least broadly speaking. I was going to ask Smriti if you or Sam could talk about what these reforms are and sort of what they say about the trajectory of the Modi government. I mean, this is someone who ran electoral campaigns based on promises of jobs and rising wages, and that actually hasn't really been the case, especially for the people lower down on the economic ladder. So maybe talk about what these reforms are, who they're serving the interests of, and what that says about where Modi is going right now. I think the moment is significant because it's as you were saying sam like a, it, it's not the only um protest that this government has seen but it's sort of like this uh building up of like <laughs> momentum that's like seems to be getting bigger and bigger and is and i mean the, 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 that's significant not only because of the sheer size but because of what sort of absurdity it's pointing out in in the government and and the and the boldness of the Modi government to enact these types of reforms that, of course, governments in the past before Modi have also wanted to, you know, deregulate uh, Indian markets in in various areas, uh, not only in the agrarian sector, but were never, I don't know, bold enough to do it, let's say. I mean, that that's certainly the case with labor uh, law reforms, which, you know, happened around the same time in October. So just to speak to like the not in a specific sense of what these reforms entail, but just in terms of how they um, like what they tell us about the Modi regime, we're seeing this sort of, yeah, like very bold attempt to touch reforms that have previously been considered like too politically volatile. And they're sort of taking advantage of the pandemic situation to like ram those through Um uh, but there there have been attempts to like dismantle state protections uh, in the agrarian sector in, in in terms of labor regulations as well since Modi's come to power. But it's sort of culminating in this moment. And, and I think that's also why the unrest is also swelling in, in this way. Yeah, exactly. And I want to just add that like... You can see the culmination in the way in which these protests are not just about the farm laws. You know, like it's clear that there are so many different uh, grievances which are building up to lead to this kind of tension. Like I kind of think of the analog in the U.S. as the the George Floyd protests. You know, it was like is this moment when just everyone was like seething about layoffs, about the way the U.S. government was dealing with the pandemic, um, evictions, you know, and people just came out, you know, it was like, it was like enough is enough. Um, and I think, you know, with the, the lockdown last March and the... This is the lockdown in India. Yeah, the lockdown in India, which was considered one of the most draconian in the world. It essentially left millions of migrant workers stranded away from their families in places where they didn't have access to the local um, like food rations. Uh, they didn't have work because they were just essentially laid off and, or they, you know, it's not exactly laid off because they're contract laborers. So their, their livelihoods are already precarious, but yeah. And then I think on top of that, you know, there's also a memory of the demonetization um, move of 2016, um, which cost the country 1.5 million jobs and crushed a lot of small businesses and people who earned their living in the informal sector. So there's all those, you know, economic catastrophes which have happened under Modi. And then on top of that, there's the ethno-religious aspects, um, you know, with the, with the Citizen Amendment Act um, and the National Citizens, the National Citizens Registry. And yeah, the heinous attacks which have been targeted or, or in which Muslims and Christians and women and Dalits who are the, you know, the ex-untouchable caste. You know, when we were preparing for the podcast, we were talking about zooming out a little bit and, and starting back in, in Gujarat where, Smriti, you've spent a lot of time and where Modi also comes from and where he got his real start in power I know what you've both said and what other people have told me as well is that the Gujarat model is kind of what Modi is trying to do to India in general. 
So understanding that can be helpful in understanding his rule as a whole. Maybe, Smriti, you could just talk about, you know, where Modi got his start politically and what, you know, the Modi model is. And then we can kind of segue and start talking about some of the stuff that, Sam, you were just mentioning uh, with nationalist violence and with ethnic violence and some of the things that Modi has operationalized and and taken advantage of and and sparked across India. Yeah, I think uh, Gujarat is like absolutely the place (laughs) to start, not only because we see um, like what Modi is all about in terms of his power game, but also where he and the right wing in general, like are exposed to sort of vulnerabilities and where, you know, (laughs) there's places where they, you know, they, their power can be uh, destabilized. I think we can see that really well in Gujarat. So, okay. Modi is from, I think a very young age was part of the, the Hindu nationalist movement, their cadre based, like paramilitary, paramilitary organization, which is called the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sang. Uh, or RSS. And this is like a very old organization. It was established in 1925 and has is like very explicitly taken inspiration from fascist movements in Europe at that time. So there's like a yeah, in the in the writings of the founders, they are uh, open in their admiration for Mussolini and Hitler and their their political agenda. So this is where Modi sort of gets his like I think, first politicization. And he rose in the ranks of uh, the the RSS as sort of an an organizer um, and then found a place in the political party, which is affiliated to the uh, RSS, and that's the BJP. And this was, I think, I don't have the exact date, so I don't, I don't know. Um, But but basically, he kind of he rose in the ranks um, throughout the 80s. And in the 19, uh, mid-1990s, he sort of became a candidate for the top position in Gujarat state in the political party, which would be the position of the chief uh, minister. And so the BJP gets into power in Gujarat in 19 19- in the mid 1990s for the first time. And it's sort of been in power continuously since then. But it is important that its initial years in power, it was highly unstable. Um, And part of that instability was because Modi had a lot of detractors. So there was sort of a leadership struggle at the the beginning um, of the BJP's rule in Gujarat. And it sort of stabilizes around Modi, but partly... Not, not because he's like considered, you know, he's like uh, he he's managed to win the support of all these people, but uh, but because of his leadership style, which is you know very like strong armed leadership. So he sort of carves his place for himself as the chief minister. But there, his detractors came from within the party, from within even the ranks of the Hindu nationalist movement. And part of the concern was that he was power hungry. And the other part was uh, that he seemed to be like very interested in staying in power and catering to like the interests of uh, economic elites in order to, you know, sort of support him while in power. And other sections of the party and of the, the right wing movement felt like he might be abandoning the ideological agenda. So already, like already from the start of his rule, there's some tension around his leadership. That's important to note, because uh, I would say that right now that there are probably similar tensions uh, like simmering uh, beneath the surface. Okay, so he he gets elected um, and is in power starting uh, in the late 90s. And then in 2002, there is a pogrom against Muslims uh, that, I mean, today there's a ton of evidence to indicate that Modi uh, was responsible and that the state definitely enabled this, uh, like, yeah, heinous attack against Muslims. And despite that involvement, uh, later in 2002, like after months of rioting and really like just this widespread violence um, between Hindus and Muslims, but Muslims were the, the, the victims in this um, 
in these attacks, uh, Modi gets reelected. Um, and he sort of at that point pivots towards away from this um, ethno-religious uh, project and pivots towards economic development and good governance and sort of championing or, or, or like reinventing himself as a man of development. Um, you know, that that's actually like his, um, I don't know, nickname is like the sort of man, man of development and progress. And he undertakes... I'm sorry, a, that's just such a cheesy nickname. Yeah, I think it's even cheesier in Hindi. Um, <laughs> so... He also has uh, the man with the 56-inch chest oh, yeah. as a nickname. Yo, so. You're not kidding? You can them. take your pick. You're not kidding about that. 56 inches wide no. or tall? Wide. Okay. <laughs> and, and, more he, and he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, but that was after, before he had to um, tout his 56 inch chest, he really uh, basically tried to seduce like big capital, uh, international capital to Gujarat. And, and really like the, what Modi was doing at this time was like, putting a veneer on what was already a high growth economy in Gujarat, like long before the BJP came to power. Gujarat has already uh, always been a strong um, industrial uh, center in India, and it's always had, you know, a strong regional economy. But what Modi did is, yeah, just really market the shit out of Gujarat's economic growth trajectory. And, uh, and, and did so in a way that was yeah, very flashy. It was like, it was, you know, he was like very clearly in bed with the big Indian industrialists, a lot of whom are Gujarati, uh, like the Ambani's, Adani's. He seduced the uh, Tata from West Bengal to Gujarat to produce their nano car. And this really worked wonders and like the international business community, the Indian business community just completely adored Modi for being able to usher in this so-called uh, Gujarat model of development that had of course already been uh, in the works before Modi, but it was a model of development that was like actually successful in bringing industrial growth that was relatively labor intensive. And, you know, so it created jobs. Um, and he also was able to provide uh, infrastructure, uh, like 24 hour power, good roads, very minimal um, bureaucracy for investing. And so Gujarat gets compared to like other success stories in the region, like Guangdong in China. Uh, and Modi is like the spokesperson of this of this model. That's really like what he I think that's what he took with him in 2014 when he ran um, at the national level. Um, it was this promise to make uh, Gujarat the model for India. So, you know, if Indians were to elect Modi, he would uh, turn like the so-called like backward states of northern India into Gujarat. He would you know, just he's not concerned with anything else but economic development for all for all Indians. And so there's this, yeah, n a pivot in his initial uh, in the campaign and in the initial years. So he obviously wins support from people who are like aspiring business people, aspiring capitalists, people who, you know, have an interest in their investments rising or in starting businesses. But he also at the same time, he's getting and building a, a, a significant base amongst a hyper-nationalist and also kind of religious Hindu nationalist movement. Could one of you talk about what are some of the different sort of civil society actors in the mobilization under Modi and what kind of role they've played in society and in politics? Well, actually, I wanted to add one fun fact to Smriti's narrative about Gujarat, which is that the Tata Nano Factory, which was established in Gujarat, moved to Gujarat actually after the, it was a failed attempt by the company and also the West Bengal government to acquire land in West Bengal, which met massive resistance. And the West Bengal government, which at the time was actually the Communist Party of India, Marxist, they mowed down uh, 18 farmers in this process. And that eventually led to 
the decline of the Communist Party in Bengal. But, you know, that just kind of I think it's a good metaphor for the kind of model of development that Modi um, envisions for the country. You know, it, it's a it's a kind of crony capitalism that is, is so explicitly uh, drenched in blood of the people whose lands, you know, it's it's paving over and yeah, and the farmers who are, uh, sorry, and the workers who are basically dispensable and precarious laborers in these factories. So no, but also uh, that's a really important point because the yeah, not only is that like sort of the human cost of bringing capital to Gujarat, but you know it, it also speaks to like the um, failure of the model because. In, I don't know, 2016, I think it was the site of labor unrest. You know, I mean, the workers, like this so-called model of Gujarat that was supposed to be benefiting both capitalists and workers. I mean, it, it, like that, the, this was like the most, it was really like a perfect uh, example of how that wasn't working because in the very factory that was supposed to exemplify how great Gujarat is uh, at development, workers there, um, you know, went on strike and they were met with repression and um yeah so it, it's on both ends it's you know there's yeah definitely like beneath the veneer of, of Gujarat development there is something bloody you're listening to hope dies last if you're enjoying the show so far please go on over to patreon.com slash ryan harvey music and you can sign up to make a monthly donation to help support the show thanks for listening y'all Earlier, when I was saying that there was a lot of contention, like from within the ranks of Modi's political party around Modi's leadership, part of that um, was this sort of distrust that he was going to pursue a uh, this ethno-nationalist ideology. So he's always like trying to make those people happy too, like the hardcore ideologues, you know, and the the riots, uh, like the pogrom against Muslims, you know, pro- probably quelled some of those concerns. And so the the development is al- always working hand in hand with the um, you know fomenting of like ethno religious violence. And in that way too, Gujarat is a model. Uh, it's considered the sort of laboratory of Hindu um, like Hindu nationalism uh, because they've pioneered strategies to like including using violence or uh recruiting lower caste groups into the fold of hindu nationalism to sort of antagonize muslims so that they can like build solidarity amongst different caste groups within hindus who in fact did not form a community you know the lower caste groups were marginalized in the hindu nationalist movement but they sort of got, they found the BJP under Modi and the RSS, they found a way to sort of recruit these groups uh, so that instead of um, uniting along other uh, lines like caste or class, they were uniting along religious lines. And yeah, that, that's that's going on too, in addition, you know, in addition to all the economic development propaganda. Yeah. You know, just to add to that, I think Smriti's earlier point about the RSS being explicitly inspired by um, Hitler and Mussolini and you know right-wing fascism is is something which I think is uh, it's shocking obviously and it's um, you know it's outrageous that you know they they embrace somebody like Nathuram Godse who murdered Gandhi but the RSS is particularly threatening because it it is so deeply entrenched in civil society. You know, it it comprises of, or I should say the Sangparivar, which is the, you know, so-called family of organizations, which the RSS is is basically the the leading organization of. The Sangparivar has, you know, dozens, maybe even hundreds of organizations or iterations of, you know, the same organization. Um, and it, you know, uh, it, it also includes institutions that are deeply important for, you know, uh, the crafting of ideology and um, for one's lived experience. So, for example, they have um, hundreds of schools across the country. They have um, clubs. They have what they call IT cells. Like, that's actually what it, what they call them. Uh, and they're essentially 
vast webs of volunteers who um, act as, you know, trolls on Twitter or who, um, you know, who coordinate just a dissemination of information. You know, if there's going to be a riot, if there's going to be some sort of, you know, public meeting or, you know, any sort of action that the RSS is planning, they have this huge network of, um, of workers who they they send text messages or actually it's usually WhatsApp messages. WhatsApp is like the key platform, uh, internet platform, which is used by the Sang Parivar. And they uh, they also run, you know, health centers and all kinds of, um, you know, cultural and entertainment oriented organizations. And the fact that they have 50,000 centers across the country means that they are in regular touch with millions and millions of people um, on a regular basis. They, you know, ideologically indoctrinate these people and they also train them in using weapons and fighting, which is, you know, something they do for, I think, you know, members who who have shown some deeper level of commitment uh, aside from just, you know, coming to a few meetings and they, yeah, they actively train them in how to use weapons to, you know, uh, they claim to defend Hindus, but as we know from the course of history, it's, it's not only for defense or it's not primarily for defense. It's for attacking the so-called enemies of the nation, the communists, the Muslims, the Christians, you know, all of the imagined enemies and Smriti, you've spent time, I'm, I'm sort of interested in, in hearing just from your perspective from on the ground about one kind of specific uh, sector of civil society, which is some of the labor movement under Modi, and maybe this was before Modi, I don't know, but some of the workers that you've spent time with were members of labor unions that are more affiliated with the right wing and with the nationalist movement. I mean, I guess we have the police unions here in the US, which is a uh, I guess, expand that by tons and tons and in tons of sectors, and you might have something similar. But maybe you could describe what that looks like. And is that a recent thing in India? Or is that or is that something that's been part of the fabric of civil society for a long time? And it's just kind of mobilized itself under the movement around Modi? Yeah, I was just thinking that like, when Sam was illustrating the extent to which Hindu nationalists have like in I mean, penetrated civil society. And then I was thinking about my own research and the experience with these like uh, larger mass organizations and not the sort of, I don't know, like more molecular uh, agents that are at work, like on WhatsApp and, you know, trolling on Twitter and, and how there is, I think, a pretty big difference there. And and in fact, like I, I would argue that the formal organizations are, um, they're, they're a different animal. Let, let, let me, let me just say that, uh, to begin with, and then, um, we can kind of get into it, but yeah, like the, the Hindu nationalist, um, uh, movement, like under the command, like sort of central command of this, you know, like fascist inspired RSS ventured into organizing workers in the 1950s, uh, because they wanted to sort of counter the threat of communism. So I think that, that like in that sense, the, what, what's happening or like the, the fact that India has this right-wing labor union is not so different from why we see labor being courted by non-left group, uh, you know, p parties elsewhere in the world. Like there's, it, it's in response to, to the presence of communism, which, you know, existed on a global scale. And I think the same goes for the farmers organization. Like that's not where of, of the of the RSS. The labor union is called uh, the Bharatiya Mazdur Sang, um, and the farmers union is called the Bharatiya Kisan Sang. And I, th I I don't have much experience with the farmers union, but my hypothesis would be that they are they have similar dynamics, which is that. There is a massive difference between like the leadership level of these organizations and the rank and file base. Uh, because these are mass organizations, the rank and file base of the right wing labor union has very much overlapping interests and grievances with the hundreds of millions of workers who are either not organized um, in a 
union or who are organized in unions that are competing with the right wing. They, they all of these workers share a common economic uh, interest and grievance. And that I think that that is really key for understanding the potential to destabilize Modi because uh, the Hindu right wing union has contested the policies of uh, the Indian government, um, including under under Hindu nationalist rule in the past. But since Modi has come into power, it's become quieter in its opposition. But that's not because it's like a sort of inherently a puppet of the regime. But I think it's because it's sort of lost out on this like struggle um, with the political party um, because it it represents uh, a mass of, you know, 10 million plus workers who are pissed uh, that not only is it the Indian government that's uh, screwing them over with this economic agenda, but it's an Indian government that's ruled by a Hindu nationalist political party that is claiming to have uh, the interests of all Hindus in mind. And it's clearly not the case. And the workers know that. Um, even in Gujarat, where, you know, the BJP has been in power continuously, the, the workers that I met were the, the legitimacy that the party held in their eyes was, I mean, it was being eroded for sure. And that was because of their experience, you know, through the labor union, like the labor union's inability to really fight for them was translating into like a slight ideological shift, but it's not translating into political, um, like any, you know, thing that's visible in, in the political arena yet, but people are pissed. <laughs> and I think that, you know, they're pissed also within the right wing and, and that might, that might carry a, a special resonance, you know, um, I don't, I'm not saying that like the power is like solely in the hands of uh, like right-wing labor but or right-wing farmers, but that it carries a special resonance. Sam, I wanted to bring you in here to talk about another aspect of the mobilization under Modi. And, and this is something you already mentioned earlier. So we're going to kind of go back to the, to the troll army uh, or whatever it was called. Or maybe you mentioned that, Smriti, I don't remember. But the IT cells. The IT cells, the troll army. But... You were telling me when we were sort of prepping for the show the other week, you were talking about the role of social media, not social media in the sense of what we think of here with like the Trump experience, but more a deeper penetration of social media corporate interests aligned with the BJP and with Modi and a level of collusion and collaboration that seems to be much greater than what it was, you know, in the United States, which is which is just a very obvious posts generate income, everyone wins. But this sounds like what you were describing and what it sounds like many people, including Facebook employees in India who were pushing back, or was this Facebook employees in the US? It was both, actually. Yeah. So yeah, describe maybe that and, and sort of the ties between those those co companies and the Modi government. Yeah. So the incident you were talking about is something that actually kind of came out in the Wall Street Journal. They did an investigative piece or actually a couple pieces on Facebook and their India uh, presence. Um, India is Facebook's uh, largest market or it's it's its largest growing market and it's it's the fastest growing market. so obviously it's um it's very crucial to to Facebook as a whole, but the um, executive director of the public policy in the country, she resigned. And this was, I think, in August or something of last year. But she resigned after the the Wall Street Journal and and others, you know, exposed the fact that she was um, posting Islamophobic content on her own account and praising Narendra Modi as the, you know, strong man who broke the the streak of the Congress's rule or the Congress dynasty. So it's clear that the <laughs> that the person who is helping to moderate India's political content is or was a a sympathizer of the Hindu Nationalist Project and also an Islamophobe. And 
there were multiple incidents where there were complaints made to Facebook about the about some of the the um, posts that BJP politicians or supporters of the BJP were making about you know or like inciting their supporters to kill Muslims and um, to commit acts of violence against Muslims um, and calling Muslims degenerates and things like that. After these reports were made, you know, these these posts were, were flagged as posts that incite violence explicitly. The Facebook India employees were basically told not to not to censor it because they didn't want to piss off Narendra Modi and the ruling party. And, you know, the Wall Street Journal later showed that there's there's been a number of breaches of the so-called neutrality policy of Facebook um, in India. And, you know, and so they're deliberately suppressing the censorship of this content, which is directly leading to violence, which obviously is nothing new for Facebook. Everyone knows that Facebook's got a dictatorship problem. But in India, it's particularly blatant with this the series of communications that were made. And then the resistance, you know, so there, there are employees in Facebook who um, were afraid of getting attacked if they were to act on these posts. So, you know, they were kind of resisting the the pressure to to censor because they were afraid you know like which is which is very legitimate you know people are attacked all the time in india for what they post online and their online activity and they're also targeted by the government <laughs> there is that and then there is resistance to facebook's actions uh, from facebook employees in the us um, in the bay area as largely muslims who pointed out the history of facebook not taking action when muslims were being explicitly threatened So I wanted to ask a final question as we start to close up the show, which is, could you all put Modi in a global context and talk about the role that India under Modi is playing geopolitically, both in the region and also in the world at large, and also maybe talk about the U.S. government's role in this and how they've been interacting with the various crises under Modi in India? So, I mean, interestingly, the the Biden administration has shown some inclination to to act on India's various humanitarian crises that are unfolding and and human rights abuses, but only rhetorically. So, you know, a few days ago there was a report that was um, that was actually released by the State Department <laughs> outlining. India's human rights abuses. Obviously, um, India is very low on the press freedom index by Reporters Without Borders. They're like number 142 out of 180 or something wild like that. But the State Department was was essentially outlining some of these like uh, you know attacks on journalists and and basically the decline of of free speech in India, which is interesting. And Biden is kind of framing it in the context of he wants to like bring human rights back to America. And I don't know when America ever was pro-human rights, but that's another story. But yeah, I think what the biggest problem here is that the US is directly facilitating the Hindutva project or the Hindu supremacy project in a number of ways. Um, One is through its tech corporations and its agribusiness corporations, both of which profit from India as a growing market. And I, I kind of talk about the the agribusiness connection in my piece in Truth Out recently, but it essentially is like is kind of connecting the fact that these farmers are protesting uh, over a life and death issue and the United States is is actively supporting um, Narendra Modi's, you know, move to advance these farm laws and has has made a statement, you know, expressing that sentiment. And the Biden administration has also been completely silent about the attacks on minorities. And they haven't actually tried to deny visas, for example, to Indian diplomats who have a record of of engaging in in this project, um, this fascist project. So, you know, that is something that they could they could actively do. And the other thing is just that, yeah, I mean, I think we need to, as as consumers in the United States of all like and beneficiaries of all these platforms, you know, social media platforms, like Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter, we should also recognize how 
we also have a connection to these hubs of power, which are propagating violence and help, you know, enabling violence. And that therefore gives us an opportunity to organize in a way that would be in solidarity with the Indian struggling workers and farmers. You know, everyone wants to, I mean, thankfully, <laughs> with Trump out of office, it's a less inclination to make the Trump comparison. But people in the U.S. can only understand the world through making comparisons to the U.S., so everyone's always trying to make a Trump comparison. Oh, Modi's the Trump of India. Duterte's the Trump of the Philippines. Uh, Bolsonaro's the Trump of Brazil, right? And of course, there's a good reason for that, right? There, there are some uh, rational comparisons to make. But doing that, first off, it kind of centers everything in the U.S., like as if uh, the rest of the world is sort of doing the Trump thing. And it also doesn't, it like fails to recognize uh, what you all both describe, which is like decades and decades of economic, political, and social trajectories that have led to this moment, specifically in India. Maybe you could talk about, just to take us out, talk about the Modi government and India right now in both a regional and a global context. Where does Modi fit into the larger sort of shift towards right-wing populism across the world, really, and also a rise of religious religious nationalism and religious fundamentalism across the board in, in Western countries, in the, you know, in the so-called developed world as well as elsewhere. And then also kind of talk about Modi's India and the trajectory of India India as a as a foreign policy player, both regionally and in the global context. I think that it yeah, the comparisons make a lot of sense. And I mean, not only in terms of like the specific leaders and their styles, you know, these are strong men. They're with fifty six you know, inch social... chests. Yeah, they they that the fifty six inch uh, chess club but also because they they like all of these strong men leaders are at the at the head of a um you know political project that is a majority it's promoting majoritarian identities it is not afraid to use violence in a very um like blatant way uh and in that way it's that like what all of these movements are showing us it's just like illuminating the same like illuminating a lot of the you know injustices that were like more disguised earlier i think and i think it's mm. it's useful in that in that way like it's useful politically and it's useful analytically i also do think that india is like the more maybe one of the more sophisticated right wing movements out there just because it has had this really long history and and i think part of its sophistication comes from the fact that it's in the global south and it has always had to cater to economic interests alongside uh its own you know ideological project of like hindu uh dominance so it you know that what trump was doing which was like sort of taking like the bernie appeal and trying to cater to working class voters on econo on an economic front. Politicians in, I mean, not just Modi, but I think politicians in the global South have been doing that since day one, because they've had to. Um, and, and so, the, you know, that is also like illuminating something about like the global economic order and like this uneven development and, you know, how that shapes politics in a place like India and, and Brazil. And, South Africa and the Philippines. Um, and, and I think the U.S. is there, there is like some sort of convergence, um, you know, between these regions uh, because it's the global economy that's in crisis. So, you know, the U.S. is sinking. And so we're seeing similar things. Sam, is there anything you wanted to say to that final question to take us out? The regional question is super important right now. I know we don't have that much time left, but, you know, I think a more uh, recent event or turn of events is the, uh, you know, the crack, the dictatorship or the military uh, authoritarian crackdown that's happening in Myanmar following the coup. And the fact that like India was one of, I think, eight countries that went to Myanmar and participated in this, um, you know, state state sponsored ceremony, which uh which also took place on the day in which I think 100, 100 protesters were killed or that same period where it was like the bloodiest set of days after after the crackdown began. 
So India has clearly made a statement to support the dictatorship in Myanmar, and they're also actively sealing their borders. <laughs> so, you know, Rohingya uh, Muslims and and other uh, refugees who are fleeing the crackdown, who may have, you know, contacts in India um, or family, or you know, they just uh, see that India, you know, has has historically been kind to uh, refugees, you know, uh, so so they're they're migrating there, and India is closing the borders off. They're sealing the borders. So, I mean, this is a uh, a kind of symbol of like their their broader policy. You know, they're actively closing the border off to populations which they consider threatening, i.e. Muslims, <laughs> and opening their border or facilitating citizenship to immigrants um, that are, are Hindu. And, you know, particularly they're, uh, they're doing so with the CAA and the NRC. Yeah, I mean, I think like the larger process of India, India's geopolitical expansion or the way that India envisions itself geopolitically is extremely alarming. I think it's going to be this process of um, India being an aggressor toward, you know, Bangladesh refugees from Myanmar and further colonizing Kashmir. Um, I mean, advancing the the kind of deep military control that India has over Kashmir right now, you know, as we saw with the uh, longest media blackout in world history, which was imposed by the Indian government and has just recently let up. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that India is is really under the, the BJP and under the Hindu nationalist rule, trying to consolidate its project through aggression on its borders by uh, trying to, you know, populate the Kashmir Valley with Hindus and, and in general, just both reaping the benefits of neoliberalism and international capitalism, while at the same time, you know, promoting this kind of aggressive nationalism and, and in a sense, uh, a form of like protectionism. So it's a really critical moment in India right now. I'm going to post the link, Sam, to your article, your recent article in Truth Out about the farmers' protests and the agriculture reforms uh, in the description of the podcast episode so folks can click on that link. Thank you both for not just being here to chat with me, but also for like uh, helping come up with this idea to do an episode about this. Yeah, it was great being here. Thank you. Hope Dies Last is produced by me. Special thank you to both of my guests today, Smriti and Sam. Check the description for the podcast in whatever service you're using to listen, and I will post some links from both of my guests where you can learn more about what's happening in India. Stay tuned for more episodes. I should have another one out in two weeks. Take care, everybody. Peace.